as an introduction this morning, so um, when we pray on Wednesday nights over here uh, in this corner, a lot of times individuals will read scripture, things that God has placed on their heart, and they share it with all of us many times while we're praying. And God then takes that and, and moves our hearts in, in certain directions. And there was this one verse that Lisa, my wife, actually read, actually two verses. She read a host of verses, but these were two within, in it. And I just thought, after I heard her read those, and as God was working on my heart this week, I just thought, I think that's how I want to start this, this out today. And um, it's Jesus' words in John 15, and I kind of want this just to kind of be in the background as we work through the book, finish up the book of Haggai. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. And your translation may say, your joy will overflow, or your joy may be full. But I look at that, and it's like, when we obey, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, you'll stay close to him, and then your joy may be in, my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. That's just awesome, in my opinion. And I sit there and think about what we're studying. And the title of this whole study was The Joy of Obedience. And last week we looked at what God has. He requires our obedience, and then he's honored in our obedience. And today we're going to look at what God does through our obedience. And I tell you, as I pray through this, my prayer is when we walk out those doors today, God will move us just closer to him, just closer to him from what we're going to hear this morning, and this is this is just as much for me as it is for all of us here. And uh, just pray God would just use this to His glory. So, just as a quick background, the setting on Haggai. Just to remind everybody who was here last week, and those of you that may not have been here with us last week, just to kind of catch you up to speed. So, 586 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and the Israelites were exiled to Babylon. In a period of about 50 years, God raises up the Persian Empire that comes in takes over the Babylonian Empire. That first Persian king, if you will, was a guy by the name of King Cyrus that God had prophesied he was going to raise up and he was going to use to take his people and send them back to Jerusalem, to, his, to their hometown, and basically build, rebuild the temple. And there were 70 years of captivity, and God fulfilled his promise over those 70 years. He kept prophesying he was going to bring them back and how he was going to do it, and he did it beautifully. They learned in those 70 years it was a God that controlled the when. He said, 70 years, I'll bring you back, and he did. The God that controlled the who is King Cyrus. I'm going to raise him up. He's going to send you back. He did, and God controlled the how. Cyrus sent them back without asking anything in return. He sent them back to their, their hometown, Jerusalem. And the Israelites were tasked with one thing when they got back there, and that was to rebuild the temple because that was a sign of God among them. And God said, when you go back, build the temple. He raised stirred their hearts to do that. But they get there, there's opposition coming from all sides, they give in to fear, and the next thing you know, they're focused on themselves, their homes, they leave the temple unbuilt. They did the foundation and that was it. And it sat there for about 15 or 16 years with no work. And then that's where Haggai comes into the picture. So that's where he enters in. God sends him in, that's around 520 B.C. And so Haggai comes to him to confront them, and gives them six messages over just a four-month period. So this is just a short period of time, six messages. And in those six messages, as we started looking at last week, 
he gives us five simple but very key reminders about obedience. And these were the first two that we looked at last week. The first was God requires our complete obedience. And in that, we looked at the the Israelites. They were back. They were not building the temple, and things were just not going well for them at all. Just tons of stuff just not working out for them. And Haggai lays that out. Look around you. Look at what's happening. He uses the words, consider your ways. And we were challenged last week to consider our ways and to ask, are we truly obeying what God has called us to do? Are we truly doing that? And then the, the second point was God receives honor in our obedience. And we looked at verse 8 of Haggai where it talked about, go build the house so that I may receive praise and honor. So, and when we obey God, that's what we bring him, glory and honor. And so now we're going to pick up with the third point. But Haggai, I'm not going to have any of the verses from Haggai up there. You'll need to turn in your Bibles uh, to it. Um, if you not familiar where Haggai is. It's the third to the last book in the Old Testament, so you find Malachi and start working your way back. I'll have scripture up here for the um, other items that I'll refer to outside of Haggai as we work through it. So we're going to pick up in Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. And our third point today is going to be God works through us in our obedience. God requires our complete obedience. God receives honor in our obedience. And then God works through us in our obedience. Let's pick up in verse 12. So then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. just want to pause right there. So then, so after considering their ways, after hearing God's commands... The people respond. And there's, there's three things I just want to pull out here real quick as we get into this. The first one is the voice of the Lord their God. I'll tell you what, we could probably take the voice of the Lord their God and do a whole sermon on it. Um, but they recognized this was the voice of God. There was a recognition. This wasn't just a man, Haggai, coming to them. This was the voice of the Lord their God. And they recognized that voice. And then they obeyed. And we sit there and we read obey, and we're like, okay, well, that's good. That was a prophet coming to them. They should obey. But this was not their pattern at all leading up to this. When you look at, back at Second Chronicles, where it kind of dictates kind of how they got in the situation they were in before the exile, this is what the writer of Chronicles says about it. It says, the Lord, their God, Lord, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. They did not obey. They scoffed at the prophets. They scoffed at the Lord. And as such, they were exiled. But here, maybe after being exiled for 70 years, maybe after Haggai coming in, God's spirit just convicting them, they heard the voice, they recognized the voice, and they obeyed. And then right at the end of verse 12, and the people feared the Lord. All reverence, honor, they feared the Lord. And essentially, in my little simple mind, it makes me just think, they just made him number one again. They put him back in his rightful spot as being number one in their life. Reverence, all, he's number one. And that's, that verse in Psalm 147, I think 11, says, 
But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. The Lord takes pleasure in those who reverence him, who are in all of him. And well, listen to those songs this morning. I, you just, if you just sit there and those words that were sung, you're just like, man, he's so worthy of that. He is so worthy of our honor and praise. And he just to stand in awe of him. And so they did those three things. They recognized him, they obeyed him, and they feared him. And then look at what God does, starting in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And the Lord came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And we touched on that last week at the end of our sermon, our time together, I am with you. He spoke to the Lord's message, I am with you. Can you imagine, just for a second, you're one of those Israelites. You've been exiled, you've been brought back, you sinned, you failed to build the temple. 16 years, Haggai comes in, things have just not gone well at all. And all of a sudden, to hear those words from God Almighty, I am with you. Can you imagine the forgiveness they must have felt? I mean, oh my goodness, after their disobedience for 16 years, oh my goodness, God is with us. He still loves us. He's still chosen us. The joy, the Lord of hosts is on my side. The Lord that controls the heavens armies and the earthly armies on my side. And then just... I am with you. Just the strength and courage those words give them for the task that's going to be before them to build that temple. Oh, my goodness. I mean, just right there in I am with you, declares the Lord. And I can't think of more powerful words for us to hear when God calls us to his task for him to say, I am with you in that task. It's just amazing. And then here's, I don't want to miss this too. It's over here in verse, um, where is it? Oh, right. And the Lord, verse 14. And the Lord stirred up their spirit. The Lord stirred up their spirit. He moved them to complete this work, just like he had done previously before they came. Look at this. If you go to Ezra, so Ezra kind of lays out what was going on at this time. This was before they came back. This is before Cyrus sends them back to build the temple. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So he basically comes back, he stirs their hearts again, just like he had done 16, 17 years earlier. They were back to where they were meant to be. They were back to being obedient people, loving God, and being led by God. They were back to being obedient people, loving God, being led by God. And I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that this was God's work that was going on here. God was rebuilding his temple. The Israelites were just a part of what God was doing. He brought them back, gave them this task for his praise and for his glory. And they had the opportunity to participate in that. And they just needed to remain obedient to do that. And it just reminds me of the task that God calls all of us to, maybe individually, or what God may call us to as a church, as a whole. You know, when you just take a step back, just to, it reminds us that, you know, it's not us. This is God's work. When God's Spirit moves in our hearts, this is God's work. We just need to be obedient people, 
loving him and being led by him and let him just do his thing. And C.S. Lewis, he has this famous quote out there. It says, obedience is the key that opens every door. Obedience is the key that opens every door to every possibility, to every move that God's desiring to do. Obedience is that key that unlocks that door. And there's no telling what God could do with us, with one of you, our church. There's no telling what the possibility is, what is behind that door, if we will just obey him, be led by him, love him. He could do some exciting things through us and for us and on our behalf, ultimately for his praise and his glory. God works through obedient people loving him and being led by him. And that's just... When I take a step back, I'm going to count it so I don't get real excited. I'm not going to jump up and down. You know, I, I need Karen to do that for me, so I just kind of stay a little low here. But when I think about that, that just to think about the possibilities that God can do through obedient people, wow. Mm. Good stuff. All right, so let's go to point number four here. And we'll probably spend the bulk of our time right here, and then I'll come back and we'll conclude at the end of the book of Haggai. But um, I just want us to hone in here that God empowers us in our obedience. Not only does he work through us in our obedience, he empowers us in our obedience. And so chapter 2 is going to pick up about one month after they had started rebuilding. And if you go through chapter 2, there's an interesting pattern. We're not going to get into all this, but there's a pattern that the Lord tells the Israelites to kind of think back still on some of their past, kind of like he did in chapter 1. So he's going to have them focus on that. But then he also has a second part of hope, encouragement for the present. And then there's a promise for the future. He lays that out in verses 1 through 9. And then he does it again in 10 through 23. Remember your past, encouragement for the present, promise for the future. So with that kind of in mind, when we go down here to chapter 2, when we start reading there, this is he's taking them back a little bit. It's going to remind them of their past. In the seventh month, verse 1, chapter 2, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? It is as nothing in your eyes. So the Israelites had already laid the foundation previously before they had stopped building. And then one month after they started rebuilding, they could start seeing the temple go up. And they could realize at that early stage that this temple was going to be nothing like Solomon's temple. That was the previous temple that was destroyed. That was a majestic temple just with beauty and all the riches that God had given Solomon and all the nations had brought in, that was just an amazing place. And they could already tell this particular temple, at least in its beauty from that angle, was not going to be like the former. It was not going to be that way. And what's interesting is, just think about it, every stone they're putting up on that temple, the second temple, is a reminder of their past sin. I mean, the fact that they're actually having to build this temple, rebuild it, is a reminder of what happened many, many years ago because they disobeyed God. So it was this constant reminder, unfortunately, to them as they did that. And, you know, you, you take a step back and think through that, and it's like we all, we all can relate to that because we all, we've got our records 
We've got scars. We've, we've sinned. There's not anybody in here that hasn't. And it, you know, it's only by the grace of, of God and through his son, Jesus Christ, um, that we can be forgiven for those sins. But you know, those scars, they, they remain and they impact us. I was talking to a, one of the gentlemen that prays with us and he, he talks about the rough, his record. We all have a record, his record, his stuff of things that's not happened in the past. But how he tries to take that and say, God, how can I use this now to benefit your kingdom? How can I take this to prevent others from going down that path? And that is a great, great mentality. And I wish even I would always look at everything in my past and have that same thought. Uh, I confess sometimes I don't do that. But I just think that's the way we all should be. But maybe you're like me. Many times I have a tendency to start thinking about that past and I start feeling guilty. I feel sad. I feel even worse, inadequate, that I can be used by God because of, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, you just kind of go back there. But then, you know, that's what, that's what Satan wants us to do. You know, if God is going to move, if God's going to stir hearts, you know, we can't be sitting back there wallowing in our sin about that. That's not what he wants for us. And that's why I think these next two words here, Mm, or just so powerful. And it reminds me of some words from Joel back one time when I was teaching up here previously about when Joel said, return to God. He said, even now, even though you've been done all this mess and you're in sin, even now return to me. And look at this in verse 4. So how do you see it now? There's nothing is in your eyes. And then it says, yet now. Yet now. Some of your versions may say, but now. Either one works. Yet now. Yet now. Despite all that, Despite that the glory of this, no, not the glory, despite that this temple's not going to look like it once did, yet now I've called you to a task. And then he says, Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, go build that house. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. And I love these next words. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Amen. Isn't that just powerful? You just look, it's like, yet now, yeah, there's a past there, but I want you to focus now on the tasks that I have given you because I'm going to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine. And he's going to do that. We're going to see that in just a second. These words are, I mean, they're, as, y'all, as we just read them, you know they're powerful and you can say, man, to trust God with those words and whatever task he leads us on is huge. But for the Israelites, it even goes a step further. Look at this. So this is David talking to Solomon. Because David couldn't build the temple, the original temple. So Solomon, God had chosen Solomon to build it. And so look at what he says here. Then David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong, sounds familiar, and courageous, and do it. Build the house. Do not be afraid. Again, sounds familiar what we just read. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And so when they hear Haggai come and tell them this word and what they're doing, right back to what Solomon did, what David told Solomon, God is restoring us to do this task just like he did our forefathers. And that they needed to hear those words, just like we need to hear those words so often. I mean, they're building this building, this temple, 
And I think it took around three and a half to four years for them to ultimately build. So this is, this is not a Habitat for Humanity build. You know, you go out and do it one week, phew, there's a house, and everybody claps, claps and walks away and pats it on the back. You know, this is like I-385, 85 interchange kind of bill going on here. You know, this is a long, long time, long time. Yeah, Woodruff Road, too. So we got, uh, you could come up with a lot of analogies. So, but think about it. So this is a long period of time, you know, and, and sometimes it's, it's easy to lose focus on those long tasks. And I imagine if they're like me, well, uh, there's probably temptations over that time frame to go back to their paneled homes, to be focused on selfishness. Their enemies were still there at this time. They hadn't gone anywhere. They were still probably causing a huge distraction for them until the king eventually came in and kind of issued another decree that kind of took care of that. So they needed to hear these words, be strong, work, and fear not. Be strong, work, and fear not. And why could they be strong, work, and fear not? Because right here in these verses, I am with you. Minds them what he told them back in verse 13 of chapter 1. I am with you. Down a little further, I am the Lord of hosts. He controls the heavenly armies and the earthly armies. And then he adds, according to the covenant that I made with you. And I always love how David Cannon always, he loves to talk about the covenant stuff. And he'll, he'll throw all those covenants out there. And I... I'm not real good at keeping up with all of them, but uh, this is definitely one. So, um, but this is the one given to Moses, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, sound familiar? Obey my voice. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, because I'm the Lord of hosts. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. If you will, indeed, if you obey my voice. See, God never broke his covenant with them. He never did. He fulfilled it. He had never forgotten it. The people had just forgotten to obey his voice. They had just forgotten to obey his voice. But God, still with them, his spirit remained with their midst. Be strong, work Fear not, because I am with you, I am the Lord of hosts, and I have covenanted with you. And I tell you, these words, whew, they just encourage me. I just I sit there, and I just think about the tasks that God has already given our church, the things we're already doing, and then think about what he may do in the future. And it just, be strong, work, fear not, just, just resonates with me. But then I also think even more about what these words mean when you think about true obedience has, this, has a cost, too. It has a cost. And I was reminded of this Wednesday night as we were here praying. Um, you know, and God, Holy Spirit just kind of prompts certain people to pray, and it just leads us down paths that we've completely yielded to Him. And I was just reminded about um, when God leads us towards a task, many times, and probably, I shouldn't say many times, probably every time, there's going to be some level of persecution if it's truly Him leading us in a certain way. And I tell you, persecution doesn't preach well, I mean, in this day and age, but it's a true thing. And Jesus called us to that. Paul reiterates that over and over in his writings. It's if you're going to follow him, there's going to be a cost. And so when I start thinking about these words in light of that, I just think, you know, we, we pray for souls to be saved. We pray on Wednesday night for souls to be saved. But are we willing to say, 
whatever that takes, even persecuting me or our church to make that happen. Happened all through history. When the church was persecuted, people came to God, came to Christ. We pray that God would use us. I was reminded of this Wednesday night too, that we pray God would use us to see an end to abortion with a evil, an evil. But thinking about Satan has such a stronghold on that right now that why would he not unleash the fury of hell on anyone trying to come in there and stop that? And why, oh my goodness, do we need the Lord of hosts on our side for that? Uh, amen to that. But we've got to have him. We've got to be strong. We've got to work. We've got to fear not because he is the Lord of hosts and he controls that and he can change it. We pray that God would be glorified through our church. But why, if God's going to glorify our church, why would Satan not come and try to attack the leadership, attack some of us? Why would he not do that? Why? He doesn't want God to be glorified. I mean, these are, I mean, we can pray things all the time, but when you sit back and say, Lord, I want to see you move. I want to see people saved. I want to see the end of abortion or whatever else evil that's out there. When we pray that and add to it, do it, Father, whatever it takes. That's, that's a different level. That's a different level. And that's a serious prayer. And not saying, I know we're all across the board here in our spiritual walks. And, and it is okay for you to say, you know, whew, God, I'm not there yet. Um, God knows your heart. You don't have to tell him that. He knows your heart. But it's okay to say, maybe I'm not there yet. But God, can you walk me there? Will you get me there? And I tell you what, that's a serious prayer, but I know God is going to honor that prayer because it puts him on the throne. And it says, I don't know how all this is going to happen. I don't know how it needs to work. I'm just going to trust you, the Lord of hosts, with it, let you do your thing. And... Far be it for me to get in the way of that. Just use me however you see fit. Use our church however you see fit to make that happen. Be strong, fear not, because I am with you. And I've been reading this little book. Um, I mean, if you look at my outside my desk or my desk, my chair at home, I've got like six or seven books, and I'm in the middle of all of them. So um, this is one of the ones that I'm in the middle of, somewhere in there. But it's about the early church. And uh, they were talking about some of the, the martyrs early on, and, and Polycarp, many of you know Polycarp, was the bishop of Smyrna around 150 A.D., I think, in that, if I remember correctly. But Polycarp, he was, he was like 85, 86 years old, and a mob came and got him because of his faith. They tied him to a, a tree or a post, and they started a fire around him. The fire didn't consume him, so they ended up stabbing him. Um, but he had prepared himself for that day. He even says, this quote is saying, I bless thee, I bless you, God, I bless thee, because thou hast deemed me worthy of this day and hour to take my part in the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy Christ for resurrection to eternal life of soul and body. And I mean, that's a guy that said, whatever it takes for souls to be saved, Lord, here I am, and he did it. And I look at that, and I think, wow, wow, to be, even to get close to that would be wonderful. And my prayer, and I hope all of our prayer would be before God, is wherever our hearts are right now, the things we're praying for and what we want to see God do, God, would you just, would you just move my heart a step closer? You know, you don't have to move me there. You can move me there completely if you want to immediately. But like, just, just get me there. Just start the process. I probably can't handle it if you did it all at once. Just one step at a time. 
whatever path God puts you on or whatever path God ends up putting our church on, because I know there's so many of us, we're just praying day in and day out for God to move. Whatever it is, these words right here, be strong, life point. Work, life point. Fear not, life point, because I am with you and I am the Lord of hosts. Amen? That is some good stuff. Good stuff. So God works through our obedience and empowers us in our obedience. And then here in the last few minutes, I want us to just look at the last point. Because he is the Lord of hosts, and he is amazing. God amazes us in our obedience. Let me just touch on just briefly here the um, scripture from 6 through 9, chapter 2. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yes, once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So verses 6 through 8, he's just reminding them who's in charge. I'm going to bring everything that needs to be done here. We'll get this temple built. He says, I'll shake the nations. The present tense is he's going to shake the nations to bring, to fill this temple. There's also a prophetic side of it as well, that what they're going to do in the future, and we're not going to get into that today. But I want to focus on verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Depending on your version... It may say something like the future glory of this temple would be greater than its past glory. Or it may say the final glory of this house will be greater than the first. The Hebrew word for latter can also be translated last. So this is actually pointing to some point in the future. The last glory of this temple, the last glory of this temple is going to be fulfilled in the Messiah. The last glory of this temple in the Messiah. God's presence in the original temple. God with us, Jesus, comes to that spot. Not the exact same temple, but the spot. And then eventually, God in us through the Holy Spirit. He's promising this to them. And look at this, this one slide here from, um, from Luke. This is when baby Jesus, they bring him, Mary and Joseph bring him in the temple. And this is Simeon before he, he just wanted to see Jesus before he died. And God honored that prayer. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. For glory to your people Israel. This latter glory is going to be greater than the former Solomon's temple. And you think about... The tears that must have been on their face as they thought about Solomon's temple and how this temple wasn't going to be quite extravagant like Solomon's temple. But I think he takes those tears and he turns them to hope about this future glory that's going to be there one day. And I tell you, they didn't get to see Jesus come, but God encouraged them. He said, hey, you, those things were messed up in the past. We get that. But because you're obey, obeying me now, there's going to be a greater future. Oh, what encouragement for us when we mess stuff up. Oh, my goodness, to think we turn back to God. God can take all that, stir it all up, make us something new, and use us for his glory far beyond anything we can imagine. Just huge, huge words of, 
of strength right there. But that, I don't want to end there because there's something even, I don't know, the icing on the cake comes later, um, or the icing on the Krispy Kreme donut, however you want to put that, right? So that's going to that's gonna come later. So verse 10, and I'm not going to go through all of this just for the sake of time, but basically he follows the same pattern. Remember the past, the encouragement for the present, promise for the future. He gives a quick analogy about defilement. He talks about how back in the Old Testament time, if a priest touched the holy meat or some, the priest's garment touched the holy meat, that garment became holy. But then if that garment touched something else, it could not become holy. It was only transferred one time. However, defilement under the law, if you touched a, a dead corpse and then you went and shook hands with enough other people, you could transfer that defilement. Um, that could go forward. And he was basically telling them, hey, everything you've done here up until this point, because you haven't built the temple, is defiled. Because just because you came back, you're not holy because you're in a holy city. No, you did not rebuild my temple, and therefore you're defiled. I think there was one uh, commentator that said they had allowed a ruinous corpse of an unbuilt temple to remain among them, and so they were defiled. And that defilement could be transferred under law. So he gives them that analogy, and then he takes them through verses 15 to 17 a little more about their past, and then ends up with verse 18, and I'll pick up there. Chapter 2 says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, and the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. So three months now they've been working. Nothing has happened. Remember, it's about God and his glory, not about what they would get. But then he has a but, like a yet now. But from this day on, I will bless you. And look at what he does. He says in verse 20, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Now this is a prophecy. He's, and I'll tell you why in here a second. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. These words I'm about to shake. Many of the prophets use those in their talk about future destruction, future times, God's final judgment. Most commentators believe we are talking about a time in the future because in Zerubbabel's lifetime, there wasn't any significant overthrow of kingdoms in that time, his <laughs> time frame. And plus the plurality of the words kingdoms and nations also points to some widespread destruction of Israel's enemies. Whenever that prophecy is, we could debate, go back and forth on what that relates to. That's really not the point of what we're trying to get to today. But it's a prophecy of hope because God's promise still stands. And look at this. That signet ring that we talked about right there at the end of, or it's listed here in Scripture, right there at the end. I will make you like a signet ring. Let me bring that home. These are the kings of Judah until the exile. So in 609, there was a king called Jehoiakim. He ruled to 598, and then there was his sons came after him, Jehoiakim. Now, 
Interesting enough, the Bible, it, when you read the Bible and read the different translations, Jehoiakim is referred to in multiple ways. You've got Jeconiah, Coniah, and you've got Jeconiah with an H in there. So uh, depending on what you're looking at, that refers to the same one. And he only ruled for three months. And then 597 was one of the exiles into Babylon. And then Zedekiah was put in power by King Nebuchadnezzar um, in 597, and he ruled to 586, which was the exile and destruction of the temple. Now, why is that important? Hold Jeho Jehoiakim, hold Jehoiakim, I'm going to call him Kaniah. Let's hold Kaniah right now. Kaniah is just easier to say. All right, so we're going to hold Kaniah. Jeremiah 22, 24, 25. As the Lord, so this is talking to Jehoiakim and Kaniah right before the exile. It's Jeremiah's prophecy. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hands of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hands of the Chaldeans. Kaniah, God ripped the signet ring off because of his sin. The significance of about Kaniah, Kaniah was actually Zerubbabel's grandfather. So what God had ripped off because of their sin, he comes back to Zerubbabel and says, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. He reestablishes that covenant, that covenant of love, and what God had already had planned to the point that when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, and after the devastation to Babylon, Jeconiah, or Kaniah, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abuad, dot, 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 Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Despite Israel's sin, God reinstated his plan God reinstated his plan to bless all people through the line of David. They were obedient. He reinstates him, calls him a signet ring, and here we go. And you look at the last words of, of Haggai there. I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And we started out about God's sovereignty with the Israelites previously last week, and we're going to end with God's sovereignty because there was nothing not even the Israelites in their sin, there was nothing that was going to stop God from his plans going forward. From Solomon's temple to the future glory of the Messiah we saw just a while ago, from Kaniah to Zerubbabel, I'm going to reinstate. No sin could stop God's plans. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians could not stop it. Cyrus, Darius, and all the Persian kings couldn't stop it. We saw eventually Rome couldn't even stop God's plan for the gospel to go forth. And neither will any future empire, future country, or even a secular America. Nothing is going to stop God's plan from moving forward. And when you look at Zechariah, who was a counterpart of Haggai, at the end of that verse, I mean, end of that book, towards the end of the book, he has this statement. And I love this verse, pointing that sometime in the future on that day, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord in his name, the only name. There will be one Lord, in his name, the only name. God has a plan. 
He calls us to be a part of it. Be strong, work, fear not. And man, when we do that, there's just joy in knowing we're serving the Lord who's going to be king over the whole earth. The Lord who is the king over the whole earth. Just amazing, amazing things. Let me conclude here. Ezra talks about the finish of the temple and then has this verse in 5. It was, the temple was finished around 516, 515 B.C. And then this is what Ezra records. And they kept the Feast of the Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. With joy. For the Lord had made them joyful. With joy, because the Lord had made them joyful and had turned their heart of the king of Assyria. They started referring to all the kings at that time as king of Assyria because that was the original empire. So that he aided them in the work of the house of God the God of Israel. For the Lord had made them joyful. There is joy for obedient people, loving God and being led by God. And Haggai reminded us that God requires our complete obedience. He receives honor in our obedience. He works through us in our obedience. He empowers us in our obedience. And he amazes us in our obedience. And as we consider our ways and choose to obey and honor him, may he stir in our hearts and empower us. And may we see him do more in us and through us than all we could ever imagine. As we obey, may his joy be in us and may our joy be full. May our joy be complete. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart. of my